Welcome to MEND, Life at the Seams. I'm Amy Day. And I'm Annie Fricky. This season, we are fanning out beyond the local cannabis community. We are looking forward, going broader and deeper to ask how we can redefine our wealth and the value we bring to our world. Toward that end, we're borrowing an idea from the world of permaculture and the eight forms of capital and applying this framework to the stories that we unveil. We are highlighting folks who are using what resources they have, things like time, creativity, skills, knowledge, or beauty to enrich the communities of which they play a part. We'll also be looking at ways in which we too can bring what we have to the table, fostering the changes we wish to see in ways both big and small. So welcome to the conversation. Walk with us a moment down this road, will you? So you step out onto the path, you've got your map and your heading and your very clear idea of where it's all heading. And yet, somehow, although your, your coordinates prove true and the topography is much the same as what you had envisioned, there's this whole new direction, a new aim, a new end for you to move into that you could not have foreseen upon turning down this road. This was the place we found ourselves in with this, our erstwhile intellectual capital episode, which turned out to be experiential, spiritual, anthroposophical, and don't worry, you'll hear that one again, material, and so much more. And well, yeah, a place where Annie and I really reveal ourselves to be complete and utter fangirls when it comes to... um, theoretical discussions of whole human education models. So, (laughs) please join us as we take this hour to speak to local school psychologist, educator, advisor, administrator, and ardent advocate Jeff Lau about the undergirding philosophies surrounding Waldorf education. What does it mean to educate a child as an evolutionary and still incarnating being? What does it look like to take the long-haul approach, to not rush into books or standardize tests or memorize facts and figures, but to first prioritize the development of the soul, of an inherent sense of reverence, play, and wonder, to build a spirited F.U. into the curriculum of a budding adolescent because we value their want and need to revolt and have built it into the way we educate them, and more What would it look like to translate these ideas beyond the classroom, beyond the realm of the scholastic, the world of childhood, and to work to educate, emancipate, and elucidate humanity as a whole? Though we dive deep into a particular methodology within this episode, I want to urge you to keep a broad and open perspective, to listen for ways that these ideas filter into your own experience, your own philosophy of life and into what it means to empower and educate ourselves at every step of the way. What experience do we wish to have inside this life? How do the ideas, methodologies, principles, and patterns that we subscribe to help us to step up and claim the fullness available to us? What are we actively doing to step into the world we wish to inhabit? 
humbly. May the questions put forth here help shed some light as you move on down your own path. May these ideas help light your way. So why don't we start with that? Just kind of, if you'll tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah. So uh, I'm currently a school psychologist. Um, I'm, you know, I'm in the university of, of, of fatherhood as well. So I have three kids. <laughs> Not quite a professor there. Uh, but I, uh, and then I also teach at Humboldt State University. I do a lot of assessments with kids. I do a lot of, um, I also run a, a, a outdoor preschool with my wife Tracy on our homestead so mm. one of the reasons we moved up here from LA was to um, sort of get out of the hustle and bustle of the way you know life was down there and figure out how to raise sheep and goats and, and chickens and, and uh, so that's what we're doing and then we open you know for our son Donovan who's now six in kindergarten uh, we wanted him to have a, a um Waldorf inspired an outdoor preschool experience. So we got licensed as a childcare facility and so that we're, we do that as well. Can you open that up a little bit? Can you tell us like what your particular, I guess, training or yeah. lineage is as related to Waldorf? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so you, you know, as most people do, you learn, well, a lot of people do find out about Waldorf as a parent first looking for schooling for their kids. So I really wanted a play-based kindergarten for mm -hmm. Cheyenne. I mean, I just knew the benefits of play. I knew, you know, it needed to be um, open-ended play. And then Waldorf, there it was. And I was like, wow. So we drove Cheyenne 45 minutes, yeah. you know, back and forth um, to this play-based public Waldorf um, school uh, out in Culver City called Ocean Charter. Mm -hmm. And um, and so meanwhile, I'm working as a school psychologist at the local school district there. And uh, a school is going to open up. It's a charter school. It was going to be a charter school, and the district said, wait, wait. You know, so charter schools right now is a big conflict in terms of them taking away money from public, right. you know, traditional public districts. And so our district saw that and said, wait, wait, we'll, we'll, let's make you a school of choice, part of our school district, but not a charter school. I didn't know anything about it. I wasn't a part of it. This was back in 2007. And uh, I'll make a really long story, you know, sort of condensed that um, by November of that year, they had like a 50% attrition rate. Um, students had dropped out. Nobody really knew what that philosophy was. It wasn't Waldorf at all. Waldorf was not even, nobody knew about Waldorf. It was more of a Montessori style mm -hmm. project base. And so I was asked by my district to help out as the school psychologist to work with behavior and classroom management. And I had been a teacher, so working with curriculum. And then really long story short, I was asked to get an administrative credential um, because they were going to close down the school. And I really believe in choices in education. And uh, so next year, they, in order to save money, they moved this campus to share an elementary with another elementary school who at the time was experiencing their own attrition. It was a fairly, you know, upper middle class district. So not a lot of young families. So a lot of the schools were experiencing a lot of attrition and and so there were empty classrooms, and so they said, we'll move you there, but you have to open with 100 kids or else it's not financially feasible. Wow. At that point, you know, we had 60-something kids. We opened that school year, 2007-2008 um, school year, with 97 kids. Oh. 
And so I had a relationship with the school district, the, the school superintendent is very well-known school district, very high performing. And they said, all right, we'll, we'll let it go. So one of my um, criteria for doing it was I only knew Waldorf and I believed in Waldorf education. So we gave our teachers the option of getting training in Waldorf education. And I did that training myself through pu this public school institute at Rudolph Standard College which is in Sacramento, Fair Oaks, which is kind of the main mm -hmm. hub um, of... Really, it's the, it was the only public school training in the country for, for a while. You know, fast forward, there's a, there's a... You know, Waldorf Public School was growing faster than any other form of charter school in, this, in the country, and the, the training opportunities are not keeping up with the demand of teachers. So anyways, I went through the public school training. We got a bunch of, you know, teachers that we thought would... Um, interested in the philosophy those that weren't were given jobs you know other parts of the school district and and um i became the school principal and i was there for five years um and it's ongoing training so we turned it into a public waldorf um k through eight school mm -hmm. it's not a charter school um because the district held them on and by year three we had a wait list of 100 kids oh, for wow. just for kindergarten alone so so, so can you back us up? And so I know that, you know, within our little circle here, you know, we're, we're, we're somewhat versed yeah. and steeped in the, the methodology and philosophy of Waldorf, but can you, to the completely uninitiated, <clears throat> but could you maybe just give us kind of some of the, the, the bullet points, so to speak, of what Waldorf, sure. yeah, and how that kind of maybe even differs from the traditional educational yeah. method out there? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, it, it's a good question and it really is a, is a broad question and actually, one of the other things I do, just to get, put a little context to this question, is I, I'm a um, board member of the Alliance for Public Waldorf Education. So I'm their pedagogical chair. Okay. We meet, we have administrators and Waldorf teachers from across the country um, who meet three times a year and then over phone, whatever. And we, one of the key issues that we're talking about right now is really defining mm. what does it mean to be a Waldorf public school? Mm -hmm. Because there was a big... Um, schism, I guess, between the private Waldorf movement and the public movement, many in the private saying, you can't do this. It can't be public because Steiner said it can't be government controlled. Mm. Um, so there cannot be any government influence. In other words, state standards can't be a part of it. And you have to teach through an anthroposophical lens, which means you have to understand that kindergartners, for example, are still incarnating into their bodies through... Um, the process of reincarnation, which Steiner, and I can get into Steiner, who was a fascinating, yeah, he was around the same time as Maria Montessori as, as well, but um, I, I don't believe the two ever really crossed paths. Um, uh, but he was a scientist in the early 1900s, late 1800s, who um, in uh, basically came out and to talk about spirituality and science and, you know, three-fourths of his followers left saying this is complete BS and he had a story around it and, and so he's you know the founder of Rudolf of Waldorf education mm -hmm. but to get back to your point <laughs> um, so it has to be developmental in nature and and there's a very specific um, seven-year cycles that Steiner outlined in terms of human development not just child development so for example I just turned 41 and I'm um, in this seven-year cycle going through 
um, what's called the um, consciousness soul development, where I'm starting to understand sort of really on a deeper level my purpose and being here. And, you know, oftentimes there's a crisis around that early Mm. 40-year-old age about what is my purpose here and looking at my soul and my my destiny, you know, and so Steiner laid this out completely through seven-year cycles, not just through childhood, but in education, um, those first seven years are critical in um, maintaining this imaginary fantasy life that they lead, and so he was very much saying that um, children should believe in spiritual entities and fairies (laughs) and gnomes and elemental beings, he called, and you could... He went as far as to say, if you are, it, if you do certain exercises through anthropos- anthroposophical anth- exercises, that you could um, be connected more with the spiritual world and understand these elemental beings. Um, and and you know, of course, Disney picks up these things, and you know, you've got the seven dwarves and all. That. It, it, you know, it completely muddles it and ruins it all because right. that's not what he's talking about, right, at all. Unless it commodifies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. So you can't do that. So you have to pull yourself away from modern view of spirituality in, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But his idea, which was very different than Maria Montessori, who worked with underprivileged kids mm-hmm. and wanted them to learn practical skills and, and, you know, felt it was important for them to learn numerical concepts and... and alphabetical principles when they were ready for it, even if that meant at an early age. Steiner believed keeping that out of the first seven years. And play is what how they're learning the world. And storytelling, um, and um, festivals, and um, just complete open-ended creative play is what they needed to fully reincarnate, in this, er, to incarnate, and movement. Mm-hmm. So play is movement. And that's why you see in a Waldorf school these remedial uh, or um, basic, um, what they would call incarnating movements all the way through the grades. You know, so if you walk into first grade, you know, Miss Stephanie's class, she's got mats laid out and they start their day with specific types of movement. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's the whole idea is that you're incarnating your this archetypal body mm-hmm. to where you can fully be human. The idea is that you... We are just part of not just this world, but we are part of many worlds and many, you know, things that we can't. And so our purpose is to be human, right? And so how do we become fully human? Well, it's, you know, in education, it starts with understanding these seven-year cycles in general, the plus or minus. Of course, then you start studying Piaget, and he's like, well, he he said the same thing, just in different language. And Steiner had a lot of insight, you know, he, not just in education, but in um, biodynamic farming. He um, said that, you know, for example, honeybees would be in crisis in this, you know, in this age. He made these predictions saying that the more we start using um, synthetic pesticides, and I know you guys have talked about this in other podcasts, Steiner talked all about that, you know, um, anthroposophic medicine. So homeopathy, you know, is a lot of it is based in Steiner's ideas. Um, so fascinating man. Um, uh, so again, I digress, but back to your question of, and he also believed that art was intrinsic in the human soul and that expression came through art. Um, and so everything that Coastal Grove does, um, or any charter public Waldorf or private Waldorf school. So Coastal Grove is our local, uh, <clears throat> thank you. Yeah. Public charter 
Waldorf school for the non-local. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so there are over just over 50, just so you know, over 50 public charter schools or public Waldorf schools because I know because they're members of the Alliance for Public Waldorf Education and And that's na- we work with them. State nationwide? What? Nationwide. Nationwide. I nationwide. Know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, nationwide. I know. I was doing a little bit of research into this and just according to like Wikipedia even because I always think Waldorf is this major presence in yeah. the world. And then, I mean, these may not be current. No, no. I mean, it just speaks to how long I've been living in Hippieville, basically. You know, like happily living in Hippieville. But I was like, oh my, like, there's under, well under 2,000 worldwide, right? Yeah. Which just kind of blew my mind. Because... In fact, Brazil um, has one of the most, the densest population of all their schools. I mean, Brazil, of all the, right? And, and Steiner's pu- German. Pu- public and available to, like, There are public, in- and so it depends on the system, right? And so okay. some, and there are no such thing as charter schools, for example, in, mm-hmm. you know, Canada, right? Um, and so it depends on the educational system. Some are what they call government schools, so they're funded just like any other school. Um, and so, you know, in the United States, we distinguish public and private, you know, mm-hmm. based on funding and based on separation of church and state. And so there's huge, there was a major lawsuit, um, the, um, late early two thousands, our local Sacramento Waldorf school was being sued by a man named Dan Dugan, who believed that the nature altars that were, that were as one of his in schools was a pagan religion and that it should not be, we should not be getting public funds mm. because anthroposophy is a religion. He called it religion even though Steiner never said it was religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, fortunately, they lost that case, but it went very far, mm-hmm. um, very high up in, in the higher courts, and, and fortunately, that case is gone. But he's still, you can go on Dan Dugan's websites, and um, he's really trying to get Waldorf out of the public um, sphere, but um, it's growing. and it's Because he, he's... Uh, Religious, or he just... believes that it's sh- that, that you know that it's it goes against separation of church and state. And he believed mm-hmm. that anthroposophy um, should not doesn't have a place in public schools, and so regardless of the fact that so for example, what I love about Waldorf education is the curriculum is intentional. So in that um, third grade, for example, um, where what Piaget said, students you know children are. are coming into much more of an abstract way of thinking about the world. Why am I here? And you notice, you know, around age seven as well, and, and slightly beyond, you know, kids start, stop believing in things like Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. And, um, you know, that never comes back, right? It's, mm-hmm. just, it's just gone. So we don't get that anymore. We don't get to, right? Um, and so children find themselves in a place where we need to give them positive um, uh, ways to affect the world because no longer is it a magical place, but now there's actually good and evil and things that really exist in real life. And um, it can be very scary. So, you know, um, for example, um, nine-year-olds very developmentally often um, have recurring nightmares uh, that come very just, it's developmentally normal. And Steiner talked about this being the nine-year change. As well, so in third grade, for example, the curriculum is about doing things with your hands, about affecting the world, about um, um, sewing your own clothes. You know, it's yeah, you know, it's when kids start to make their first doll. You know, in the you know in the practical, in handwork, um, mm-hmm. they start farming. Uh, they start, you know, and, and Humboldt is, is really a great place to start learning about yeah. that. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, you bring in 4-H, which is nothing to do with Waldorf, but 
very much in line with the Waldorf mm-hmm. principles. So every part of the curriculum, not only is it art-based, but it's developmentally intentional to meet the child exactly where they're at. Mm-hmm. So when you study revolution in, um, you know, in the middle school, particularly in eighth grade, mm-hmm. it's because they want to revolt. Oh, you yeah. know? They want to affect the world, and they're not going to listen to the adults that are telling them and putting rules on them. And so what better way to study revolution, right? Or what better time in a child's life to study revolution than in those middle school years when that's when they're most, you know, ripe for it. And that's when they're um, in this feeling. So seven years, the first year is all about, the first seven years is development of the will. So it's willing, feeling is the next second, seven year cycle. And thinking is age 14 to 21. Um, and again, there's just uh, just so much to learn about these these cycles. And so, Waldorf education looks at these cycles very intentionally. It brings art in as the form of bringing um, the curriculum to life through storytelling, through um, practical skills, through main lesson books, which we can talk more about at some point. But um, um, through painting, through portraits, you know, portraits, through you, know, you name it, and it's mm-hmm. it's there. But it's not as in a public school separate. It's not you go to the art teacher and learn about art, and you go to the computer teacher and you learn about computer, and you go, um, and everything is in a vacuum. Steiner believed that that art is the vehicle for learning, and it's where our spirit is most aligned. And mm-hmm. you know, coincidentally, um, or maybe not coincidentally neurological, you know, now that we can look at the brain in action through MRIs and things, um, the only wakeful activity that we know of that mimics the same brain activity as dreaming and sleeping when you're asleep is free drawing. Um, and so think about that, you know, and so Steiner believed that, um, that is what awakens, you know, our deepest sense of being human Mm -hmm. is, um, through, through the arts so, of course, and then looking at these stages. So feeling would be the 7 through 14. They're very much in their feeling stage. They're very much, they don't have logic. They want to know, you know, but they're, they're emotional, you know, and puberty is happening. And then it's not till later on when we start getting to think mm-hmm. about things in a logical way. And of course, it's not as concrete as I'm saying. Right. But in general, these things are, are where other developmental psychologists say the same thing as Steiner said. And that, you know, so that's what I love about it is that yeah. it's been validated by people that didn't know nothing about Waldorf education. Uh-huh. Well, and I think it's interesting because uh, when, especially when you said the 14 to 21 is like the, the thinking cycle. Yeah. And I, I just went to like my Midwest upbringing or whatever, the, the kind of that public education view of whatever, like 14 to 21 teenagers, God, they're not thinking, God, they're just run by their hormones. And they're not, <laughs> you know, like you just, yeah. I guess what I'm saying is like, it's, it's, I love how it's looking at it, like the positive, aspects of those ages you yeah. know where i feel like we can also tend to be like oh the terrible twos yeah or, oh you know now this you know that they're this age so this is the challenge yeah and so it seems like it looks at it from the other way yeah there's just so i know andy's giving me that look like what's going on i'm just waiting there's just so much i mean like well so i'm, I'm writing these down in sections because i i'm interested too in like so i really think you know from my limited experience of Waldorf education. I had a brief period in my 20s where I worked um, at a school in the after school program. Mm -hmm. And and it kind of blew my mind just how 
one thing that really stood out to me was just the sense of how integrated as full human beings mm. these children were. I mean, like I'm looking at eight year olds that seem to have a better sense of who they are mm. in the world and their own, um, <clears throat> just integrated. I guess that's the word I could say, yeah. because, you know, I grew up in, um, you know, my, my parents made a point of paying, you know, a silly amount of money yeah. <laughs> to go to private school. But the, the emphasis was a, the rigor of academia, you know? So it's mm-hmm. like by the age of, eight, nine, you know, me and my little sister are testing at these, you know, super high levels, really, really fucked up emotionally, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, they paid all this money for us to get really, you know, quote unquote, good education <laughs> as children, but then they also needed to pay for lots of therapy yeah. in our teenage years. So I'm, I'm interested, and maybe this is something to come back to, but I'm, I'm interested in these cycles beyond just childhood, because I feel like, you know, since we are talking about really such a small portion of the human population that is getting yeah. this type of education, like, what are those cycles beyond the age of 21? I mean, how do we implement some of this stuff? I mean, like, you know, I'm 36, and, you mm-hmm. know, when you talk about, like, you know, we're in the age of trying to fill mm-hmm. out our life's yeah. purpose yeah. and meaning, I'm like how do I get a Waldorf education right now? You know, like I need yeah. some of that. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's something we circle back to, but it's something I'm definitely like, okay, well, if only 1200 or so of these schools are in existence, yeah. you know, like how do we get the rest of these ideas out to the rest uh, of us who, yeah. who didn't have that experience? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and I certainly can't comment in such, in great depth with, you know, the development um, really beyond, you know, in, in, you know education, um, mm-hmm. you know, those first really 21 years that I've studied. So, you know, more than anything. And of course, everything else you study is what's relevant to me right now in my life. And, right. and um, uh, because that's all we have time for with three kids. And, everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and not to mention Steiner's <laughs> talkings, you know, his everything is written in German. And so the, the translations and his books are really hard to, uh, you know, to really digest. And so, um, but, uh, he stressed biography as, as, you know, the other aspect of education is that it's as much about teachers understanding who they are themselves and what they're bringing to the classroom. Steiner got very upset. Actually, there's a story of him walking through the first Waldorf school the first week. And this third grade teacher was teaching, and I'm, I'm guessing it was third grade. But it was this teacher was teaching these kids the same way that the other teacher was teaching a different group of kids. And he very much stressed that teachers are different and each teacher brings something different and should honor that based on who they are. And every class is different. And we know that. I mean, every class is its own organisms, right? Mm-hmm. right? So they shouldn't be doing the same thing all the time you know, on the same day. I mean, they are, they are you know, two different organisms, so to speak. But going through the, bio- the you know, biography, um, understanding those life crises, understanding where you are in, in development is, is, um, is it's a major aspect of you know, anthroposophy and you know, what he believed to becoming fully ready, really preparing yourselves to go on beyond this life, you know, mm-hmm. and doing the work that needs to be done mm-hmm. beyond this life. So you can, yeah. Well, it looked to me too when I was doing some research that you know, what limited, um, you know, when we follow kids who have had the opportunity, right, to do this from those early developmental stages all the way through, I mean, because there's very few places you can get a Waldorf education in high school, right? Yeah. Like, that's even a smaller subsection. Yeah. yeah. 
So we don't have a lot of case studies, right? You know, mm-hmm. as far as like, what does this look like? What, how does this impact a child into adulthood? What yeah. kind of, and it seems to me, and you could probably speak to this much more fluently that, you know, that I was reading just, you know, there's, there's, they're, they're generally more optimistic. They feel more engaged as a member of the human community, mm-hmm. as a citizen. Um, is there, from your own experience, I mean, like if you were to, line it up side by side, you know, here's yeah. the traditional, I'm using my air quotes, yeah. educational method. Yeah. Um, and then here's someone who has been steeped fully in the Waldorf method. Like what are some of the key differences that you see as far as how they sh- pres- show up as, yeah. as a member of the human community? Yeah. So, um, you really nailed it in the very beginning. So when, when Waldorf school, uh, Waldorf students are interviewed and there has been a lot of people, unfortunately, a lot of the Waldorf research is done by those that are interested in promoting Waldorf education. (laughs) So it's hard to look at, um, although Stanford just did a study on the school in Sacramento and, and looked at, uh, it's a wonderful study. And, and even though it was funded in part by Rudolf Steiner foundation, um, and they're very, I'm transparent about that. Um, you know, the, these are Stanford researchers who were looking at Waldorf education and the benefits of it. And so one of them really is children knowing who they are and what they're, what they're, you know, what they're bringing to the world. I mean, that is a key. Um, the challenge there, especially in the public realm, is that it's, how do you assess that? Right. You know, how do you, you know, you can interview kids, you can. um, And so we're in such a um, such an accountability, you know, uh, focused in in our public education that everything has to be tested. So so but uh, Waller's students are uh, well known by many colleges, by, um, you know, um, Highland Hall, which is a big um, private Waller school that goes K through 12. There are, um, there's a public um, uh, high school in Ronert Park, you know, about four hours south of here, Credo High School. It's amazing. Um, over 90% of their students are graduating to well-known colleges all over the mm-hmm. country and are often getting their, their choice. Um, so I'd say that's the biggest thing is that they're doing, um, they're, they understand who they are as people. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly they do well on, you know, these standardized SAT scores and things like that. Um, there's been um, some research, and it's talked about in this Stanford study that I'm referencing as well, um, that they tend to do um, uh, uh, less well than in the younger grades, so third grade through fifth, sixth grade, because the curriculum is much slower. Mm-hmm. So they haven't had exposure. And when I say I haven't had exposure, it means they're doing other things instead of the worksheets. So they're doing handwork, you know, learning how to sew and knit. And, um, and by the way, that's a whole nother conversation of, well, why do we need to do that in modern society? Well, there's really key Mm -hmm. reasons why we would still want teach, you know, kids to learn these things and have reverence for their clothes that they're wearing and the, Mm. you know, the bees that made the the beeswax grands and those, I mean, it's a real uh, hole in our society is having reverence for things, you know, because so much of it is about abundance. But then um, in the middle school years, you see that Waller's uh, schools um, catch up and surpass based on standardized testing measures. Mm-hmm. Um, on Even on the, you know, we've just had the new common core standards, which have been introduced only 
three, four years ago, right? That's been tested, but um, we're still seeing Waldorf students doing very well, mm -hmm. um, particularly in the middle school grades, because again, um, developmentally, they're they're more ready to take those tests, and they've mm -hmm. you know they've had that exposure. It's just taken them a little longer to, to get there. So, yeah. I don't know. That answers your question it, entirely. It does. It, well, it, it, it definitely, it, 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 yeah, it, it dives into the play. <laughs> I have okay. a feeling that, you know, yeah. I could probably, we could probably pick this. your brain about this for many, many hours. <laughs> it does need to be yeah. more independent research done on Waldorf uh -huh. education. That's really a, a large conversation about that, but. Well, I think, like, just on, even on the surface, you can look at public, and I, when I was writing my questions down, I even read this to Amy, like, I'm trying not to be biased, but, I mean, I, I homeschooled my old, oldest daughter with, yeah. Uh, Waldorf curriculum. My now they're two of them are in the Waldorf school. I definitely believe in it too. So I'm trying to ask these questions unbiased. But I feel like it is to me. It's obvious that you would look at public education and Waldorf or traditional education, Waldorf education, and see the benefits. And I think some of the key things, like you know, the memorization versus like the integration of the yeah. knowledge and how to use that knowledge, yeah. or you know, like my education was memorize it for the test, get your A, and then it just, it's gone. Like, you lose it. And I think there is, and then this, what are we teaching our children? Like, what's our goal? And I think, you know, a lot of public, or traditional public education is kind of getting them ready for the workforce. How do they follow directions? How do they fit into this box and in that box? Yeah. And I think there's also this kind of competitive versus you know, kind of non-competitive, I think of, uh, I mean, would you say that that's true? Like, yeah. And more so in the private movement than the public because public school, you know, yes. In, just in terms of competition, you know, again, that's something that, that, um, people who study Waldorf would say, you keep that away from those first seven, seven years in particular, because it, um, it brings, the will forces, if you so to speak, or the you know, the body, which is really what's developing, um, brings it to their head, and so it actually could inhibit certain growth, of, you know, in this incarnation of you know becoming, um, you know, uh, incarnated all the way through. So yeah, it's definitely discouraged, you know. Um, but in public school, you know, we let certain things go as well. You know, for example, you wouldn't often see you know, team sports in, in the younger grades in a private Waldorf school, whereas a public school, you're more likely to see them, you know, doing that. And, and you know, um, I think so much of it is, is also about, you know, your choices as parents. Do you involve them in that? Do you not? Right. Um, yeah, how much emphasis do you put on the, the ribbon yeah. that they got at the track meet? <laughs> uh, and that's, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a societal issue as well. Uh -huh. and, and that's also a very Western you know, North American kind of, uh, uh, you know, all about product and getting further and getting mm -hmm. ahead. Less so about, you know, Eastern cultures looking at process much more than, right. than you know, and that. So. Well, so that seems to be kind of one of the big differences between these types of education, I guess. Mm -hmm. But one thing I was thinking about, um, the screen time, right? The, yeah. the media. I love that they really discourage the use of media and screen yeah. time and there was actually a mom in the uh, a new mom in the kindergarten class the other day who was looking at it because she wants her kid to be going to school with other kids that aren't so heavily influenced by mm -hmm. this media but my one question that um around that is because we do live in an age where so much is starting to happen on 
you know, with our phones and our computers. Yeah. And some would say that because we have access to the internet now, like anybody, like there's just so much information out there and there's yeah. so much knowledge, I guess, air quotes again. <laughs> <laughs> so is there, like, is there a possibility that these kids could um, get left behind in that area or hmm. is, are they going to... It's a really common question. It's a really interesting, you know, it's a really good question. And so, number one, I, I appreciate it because I hope your listeners can, you know, also dispel, I think, the myth. Um, there's a couple of big myths in Waldorf education. One that's, you know, Eurocentric because, you know, Steiner came from Germany and and there's stories all, all around that where I can tell you that's not what Steiner said. And um, was actually being persecuted by not by Nazis as well to the point that he had to shut down the first Waldorf schools. Oh wow! But the other myth is that you walk into a Waldorf classroom and it's desks in rows and chalkboards and we're not keeping up with the times, and that our kids are going to be left behind. And so, um, first of all, there's absolutely zero research. One on smart boards. Let's just talk about smart boards. I mean, the millions and billions of dollars that public education is spending on iPads mm-hmm. and and smart boards has absolutely zero research that said actually benefits kids, moves them along in their learning and their education. It opens up to, to whole, all new worlds and it's instant gratification and things. And it makes it far more exciting. And, and, but, and our kids now are going through a major disconnect between their development, their development of, of sexuality and, their, and executive functions, which doesn't come online until later on, mm-hmm. you know, um, high school years and, mm-hmm. you know, beyond. And so our executive functions in order to make choices, but yet they're exposed to these things later on. And so they're having to make choices and understand things way before they're ready. And so this is a major gap that's creating what I think is a real crisis of childhood. I think it's a crisis, um, in general development and, and, um, of kids. And, um, so I don't want to, you know, to take, to hear that this is a fear-based response that I'm giving because the biggest thing is that we have to understand technology before it's handed to kids and Mm -hmm. we have to, um, have a relationship with it. Um, and so there is a bit of research and and if you look at the Silicon Valley, where, um, you sound like me, where those in the tech industry are sending their kids to Waldorf schools, right? You've probably looked at the media reports about it. And the two basic reasons are that, um, and that have been shown in research in regards to why we should wait, are one, by the time, you know, your daughter and my son get to where they are going to use technology and need it in the workforce, it will have completely changed. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's changing so rapidly, right? The second, and so why should we, you know, need them to learn about it in kindergarten right now? The second is that, um, it's so user-friendly. So you walk into a class of, let's say third graders who are now required by the state to, um, to take the standardized tests on Chromebooks, right? Right. Well, in order to take a test in a Chromebook, you have to know how to type. You have to know how to manage a computer. You have to know how to open a file, how to drag a, uh, you know, use a mouse. Teach a class of 30 kids that, and it will take you, you know, you could spend, you know, weeks just doing that, what I could do in five minutes with my kid at home, Mm -hmm. you know? Why am I spending time in my day 
teaching them about these things just really for this test. It's not preparing them later on. Right. They can learn it. I didn't learn to type until I was, you know, a college student. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it doesn't mean I was at a disadvantage. It doesn't mean I was at an advantage, to be honest. But the, my point is, is that, um, you know, these things will come when they need to come, right? The second part of that is what's going on when when we are engaged in screens the, and, and what you're missing out on. And that's that it's not, you know, we get caught up in this idea that it's the content is scary or the content's not good for them. It really has far less to do with the content than it does to do with what it's taking the place of that can only take place during these developmental windows mm-hmm. that happen in these first seven years. Mm-hmm. And research is showing this. Kids are learning how to pay attention and focus. Kids are learning how to sit still. Um, they're developing an inner monologue for problem solving later on. So if you watch a young child play in preschool, for example, they're talking out all these scripts, right? And those that external monologue becomes their internal monologue later on for problem solving. But it's being replaced now by external forces and external media, um, be it music, be it, um, you know, cartoons, be it, you know, YouTube, whatever it is, it's taking the place of those things that cannot be um, replaced later on. So if you take a child with autism, for example, who, who needs explicit teaching and social skills. It's like learning a second language for that child. You know, mm-hmm. there's a certain windows of development where socialization needs to happen in a natural format or else it's like a second language later on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by exposing our kids to media and by, by giving them, for example, the iPads in the, in the car on the long drive, they're not learning to develop their own inner monologue. They're not learning to be observers of what's going on around them. They're not needing to listen to what's going on around them. And those are brain skills that, that uh, are, are at their highest peak and needing to be taught and learned at that age. So, you know, um, they're actually better off and they're going to be um, more able and more capable of using the technology when they need it if they wait. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to me there's this thing about becoming either either you can develop some mastery around technology and why you Mm -hmm. can choose to implement it how you desire and not have it kind of lord over you, if you will. Whereas almost there's this thought, it's in my mind at least, where if you introduce it too early, you don't, I mean, it's like introducing, you know, any other addictive substance almost, you know, it's just like you don't have enough information. You don't have enough of a broad tool set yet to learn that kind of mastery. It's going to master you it, it seems like yeah, um right. and i'm sure that's a whole other discussion we need to we need to have it and so <laughs> when we introduced it in our middle school for example and this is something that um walder really needs to get a, 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 a better hold on in terms of how do we introduce technology and when and different Waldorf schools are doing it in different ways and some private schools are saying no way not until high school whereas you know other schools are saying we need to bring this into middle schools how do we do it and it's a it's a it's a, it's a current conversation. When we brought in, I'll just tell you a quick little story, into, to our sixth grade class, and we decided at the, um, my former school, um, where I was <clears throat> principal, and we had, you know, the middle school teachers, we had this discussion. We um, said, how do we bring it in? Around that time, uh, I remember it was November of um, our third year of the school, 
and um, all the other schools had gotten uh, grants for smart boards and you know um, uh, you know one-on-one -on -one technology <laughs> um, iPads and, and so on right and here we are with nothing and so I was at the district office headquarters and um, I was walking out of a meeting and I looked over at where our facilities plant was and there was a pile of the old um, Mac gel computers remember those they, they came out um, I guess it was in 2006 or so. Mm -hmm. um, and they were all different colors, and it was the new Mac, right? And they were sitting, and it was a rainy day, and they were just getting dumped rain. And I was oh, like, gosh. oh my gosh, right? they're just in this Jeez. pile. Because they were replacing them all. Mm -hmm. And so I had a really great tech um, director. And I called him up, and I said, what are you doing with these? And he said, well, we're going to recycle them, we're going to get rid of them, we're just, you know, they're trash, basically, right? And so I said, can we have six of them? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. What are you going to do for it? And so they were created the same year these sixth graders were born, right? And so we brought them in, and we told the story of John Henry, and the, you know, the steam engine versus, you know, the, or the steam um, uh, drill that's going, you know, to make the railroad red tracks, and, and John Henry won... Um, you know, using just his own force, and it was man against the machine, right? Um, fast forward to, you know, the late 80s, when you have Big Blue, the, you know, the first, one of the first computers beat, you know, Gary Kasparov, the, the master, world master chess player, mm. beat him to, you know, two to one in chess. And we tell that story. And on the front of Time magazine was... The, um, the end of, uh, it was something like the end of the human brain, basically, because it was being replaced with his computers. And Gary Kasparov basically relented and, you know, he, this, this, he lost the chess mask to a computer, to a machine, right? So we have that discussion first. And we put up, what are the qualities that humans can bring and only humans can bring? And that computers bring and only humans. And, and it was everything from love and compassion to... Computers don't have to sleep. They can work 24 hours a day and they're much more efficient. And like, yeah, isn't that great, right? Not as a bad thing, mm -hmm. right? It's not putting... But it starts to develop a critical relationship. And so before we give them computers, and then we... I had the, uh, the director of, of, uh, of technology wheel in these computers with all of his tools. And we put the kids in groups. And we said, all right, we're going to take these apart and see what's inside of them, Right. And they had all the tools to pull them apart. And you saw, what you saw was that these were human-created machines. They consisted of parts and microparts and screws and, and everything else. And you could take them apart and you could put them together. But it was you that were doing that. You were in control. You were in charge. And that is a, that is a fundamental human quality. And so we have to see technology as a tool for the advancement and sometimes for the demise, if we allow it to be, of this of our human um, evolution. And if we don't bring it in in that way, if we don't bring in things like media literacy and technology literacy, and how do we actually research a topic, understanding what research really is, and we don't teach those skills, um, then our kids will be behind. Because then they're going to go blindly into the world of the internet, and they're going to be you know, thinking that they're researching and doing these great things when in reality it's all false. It's false information, it's false whatever. So so we do have to teach that.
But we need to do it when they're in that stage, when they're ready to revolt and they're ready to rebel and they're ready to learn, right? Not in preschool and kindergarten and first grade and second grade. So anyways, I digress again. No, but <laughs> I love that story. I love that. Well, and I love the idea of like that, that revolting stage. I'm saying it in the wrong yeah. way. I mean, because we're taught, you know, like really on that that's, there's something wrong with you. You know, yeah. like you're doing it wrong because you feel the need to rebel, because you feel the need to question everything and, you know, just put your big middle finger up to the world at that yeah. age. You know, we're told that that's something inherently wrong within yeah. us. So like this flipping it on its head and saying like, no, you're exactly where you should be let's give you the tools to actually revolt you know and rather than just like spin your wheels and you know i mean we don't we don't have the consciousness to understand how addicted we really are to these devices and then because of our own biases we reject when people say you need to put your phone down or you need to you know you're 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 on it too much we say no 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 i'm not doing that right and being productive here i mean we're being productive and you're yeah so Unless we instill a consciousness at a very early age to understand who we are as humans and who technology is and that we can have a relationship, but it has to be, we cannot be, we have to, we cannot be slaves to our technology unconsciously. Things don't look good, in my opinion, unless we start recognizing that in a really real way, you know, and I think that needs to start with our education. Absolutely. And at home, you know. I lo- I love the that they for them to have the opportunity to take it apart. Yeah, you know, to start with that, like that's like, dismantle it before it takes over. So one thing I want to talk about is just this point of access. Mm-hmm. So I've worked in kind of the and I'll put my air quotes up again wellness sphere for you know I've studied herbalism and yoga and um, and I feel like you know my big thing around those is like these are these are tools that everyone needs to have access to yeah. like you know an awareness of your breath an awareness of your body this idea that you can go take a walk in the woods and mm-hmm. actually harvest food and medicine and make that for yourself you know this is DIY shit this is not mm-hmm. elitist like you know let's go bliss out on a you know hundred dollar sticky mat in Costa Rica somewhere Um, and one big beef I've had with that community kind of the the wellness community Mm. in large is it it's it's elitist you know Mm. it costs thousands of dollars to do a yoga teacher training it costs thousands of dollars to get certified as an herbalist it costs thousands of dollars to go on any number of retreats Mm. or get these intensive trainings and one thing that I come back to again and again is you know, at a certain point, rich white people don't need more mm-hmm. of this stuff. You know, the, it's it's not going to the places it needs to go. You know, like we need yoga in prisons. We need yoga in yeah. schools. We need yeah. herbalism in, you know, yeah. uh, underfunded, commun- you know, low-income housing yeah. areas. That's where it needs to go. Yeah. So, so this idea, I mean, like Waldorf is so, it's so specialized. It's so, it's a relative, very small portion of the population that actually has access to this. And like you said, um, I mean, I, I, I'm aware of several part, um, mm-hmm. private mm-hmm. Waldorf schools that cost the same as going to an Ivy League school mm-hmm. each year. You know, it's really hard to get yeah. to, the, so how do you... How do you make this accessible? How do you bridge that gap between... And even, you know, like, you know, if we're talking about our local Coastal Grove school, I mean, that's a that's, that's hard to get into, right? you got to get on a waiting yeah. list years before you can even... Um, so mm-hmm. how, how, how do we improve access to people that need this kind of education? Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's such an important question. And, and that's where, one, making Waldorf education public was such an important move that's why this movement is so important 
um, in, in making it public and bringing it out of the private. And, and the private schools will say the same thing, you know, that it, that it, it is um, primarily white, privileged families that can pay, you know. Uh, we look at, we just had this conversation as our um, board, uh, you know, our public alliance board, we meet. And we sat around the table and we said, we are all white, privileged people sitting around making decisions about how to bring Walders into public schools. But we're conscious of it. We're aware of it. Um, and it's absolutely a need that we're, you know, that we, that needs to be, um, it, it needs to be addressed. <clears throat> there is a school, a uh, public Waldorf school in Oakland now um, that has been around uh, for several years that um, is a wonderful model of how Waldorf and um, the ideas, principles behind Waldorf education can be brought to inner city schools with low-income families and um, of different backgrounds and ethnicities. Um, <clears throat> part of the charter movement, this is also outside of Waldorf education, one of the criticisms of charter schools in general is is exactly this, not just Waldorf, is that it's pulling away educated families out of mm -hmm. schools that need the money most, and there's an element of white flight moving um, into um, the best charter schools who are going to get to, you know, raise the money and raise all the money. And the reality is public schools, by the way, are 50% funded by parents yeah. for the most part. Yeah. Right. And if not, they're funded by property taxes. Right. And so already there's, you know, there's a huge discrepancy between yeah. how schools are funded, which thankfully we live in a state that I think recognizes that. And, and I think our governor recognizes that in which we have now hopefully uh, at least a funding formula that will proportionately fund schools that need the money to get more money. But it's not just a money issue. Right. So I don't know how to answer your question beyond continuing to, uh, you know, to continuing to make it known more, you know, the way anybody finds a school is that they go out and they research it, you know, and they look at, you know, so, so it's access to technology, it's access to, it's word of mouth. Um, also groups, ethnic groups tend to move together. We know this from research. So, um, research on charter schools where, you know, um, one or two Latino families move to a charter school, you're likely to get much more, many more Latino um, families to go to that, that same charter school because they, you know, cultures tend to move together. Neighborhoods tend to move together in that way. So, um, you know, we need to have um, transparent um, uh, entry processes for charter schools. I don't know if I go as far as to say affirmative action, but maybe that's a discussion that needs to be on the table as far as, you know, mm -hmm. how we do lotteries mm -hmm. for schools. If, if there's enough of a, of a want for a Waldorf public school, you know? Um, I don't know. I think it's, it's an important discussion that's going to be ongoing. So, Do you see yeah. an opportunity to get some of, these, uh, some of this Waldorf education implemented in public education? Like, is there a way, although it is kind of like this whole yeah. philosophy, you can't really just take bits and pieces of it necessarily. Is this something that could, you could perceive, you know, being somehow put into the public education? Is there a way to do that where everybody has access? To well, you know, ironically, Betsy DeVos is talking about, you know, more um, local control and, and less government influence and less government regulation. And um, she's very pro-charter. And while their schools don't have to, you know, there, there are only two in the state of California. 
schools that are not charter schools, that are public Waldorf schools. One is in Sacramento that I mentioned. The other one is the one that I started in, in Southern California. And that was just a confluence of circumstances where we had a progressive district that said, whoa, we want to give families choices. We'll make you. And, and they gave us a lot of autonomy because there has to be autonomy. So that's really key um, to have autonomy, uh, for schools to have autonomy. You know, um, but public schools are by law supposed to uh, not turn away families based on disability, based on, you know, race, gender, uh, any of it. And so that's if they're receiving public funds. And so, you know, the, the laws are in place to to make that happen and to make that a reality. We don't have enough public Waldorf schools to serve all the families. I mean, at least look at, you know, Coastal Grove being the only one between here and Southern Oregon and, you know, four hours south in, in in um, you know Santa Rosa, mm-hmm. but is there oh, Ukiah, is there a way to bring it to like McKinleyville um, or Dallas Prairie or you know I mean, to bring the methods? Yeah, to have it on a grant. To me, when you say that, it comes back to almost you know I was writing down the you know some of the key principles of the method you were talking about, Jeff, mm-hmm. when we first started, and it seems like it is some of those things like you know learning basic you know like you said hand skills you know yeah. like I've never heard it actually. I remember being scratching my head a little when I would watch that. And I was like, that's really cool that they're learning how to... But in, it, at the time, it didn't really... I didn't get it. I was like, so they're learning how to be little pioneer Amish people? That's right. what's going on. Right. <laughs> like right. in, right. in the modern yeah. context, it made no yeah. sense. And when you say, well, actually, you're learning about, like, you know, honoring things and, and reverence and having not just, you know, living in a consumer disposable society where everything comes in plastic packaging... You know, from yeah. a, so it's yeah, it makes sense now. But um, I mean, so yeah, what would that look like if you were to bring in pieces? Even though you know, maybe it's not ideal to chunk it up. I mean, like, what are some of the? I mean, is is it is it gardening? Yeah. Is it hands on stuff? Is it painting? So I think I'll answer it from a personal standpoint. Yeah. As because there there is a lot of um, discussion in the larger Waldorf community between you know, one our you know alliance board who really believes this needs to be in public schools, mm-hmm. but in our board it ourselves, we know that we have to um, be careful of people calling a school or, or paradigm Waldorf um, just because they have a handwork program or just because yeah. they're, they're learning to knit or just because they do some painting or they have wooden desks. You know, it's like, you know, that's not Waldorf education. If you're just talking about the, met- the methodologies, I think it's brilliant to, you know, there is public school training for teachers that want to just bring in um, learning how to teach kids wet and wet watercolor painting and what, what's the purpose behind that and the emotion, social emotional purpose behind that and the, you know, or learning how to do storytelling instead of, you know, reading from a book directly mm-hmm. or learning these um, rhythmic movement exercises in younger grades. And, and by the way, um, there are those movement exercises um, that are has nothing to do with Waldorf. Things like brain gym, for for example, or ball of visex is another um, movement um, trainings that you can bring into public schools, which are directly parallel with what Waldorf schools were talking about. Which is we have to, you know, we retain things in our body first before it goes into our mind. And so, um, so I think it also has to speak to the teacher. I think for the most part, when teachers go to Waldorf trainings, they walk away going. I had no idea this existed. This is really amazing. I'm going to bring in so much of this into my class. It's really exciting. And there are other teachers that really don't, you know, believe that it's uh, it's it, it, that it, um, 
is something that they want to bring into their classroom, you know, and, and that, that, that it's really good for the kids and they don't really understand why and the purpose. Like I said, everything about Waldorf edu- education is a lifelong study in the depth of what we're doing. Um, I mean, you can see just in this conversation, you have to buy into this whole paradigm shift. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's a complete paradigm shift, you know, um, in terms of how we bring things to the kids. Um, and so that's a, tr- that's a personal transformation for a teacher to go through to be able to say, yeah, I'm going to do this, you know? Um, so, you know, uh, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to bring these things in, whether it's Waldorf or not Waldorf, because there is important elements of it that I think are lacking in traditional public education, art being one of them, or, mm-hmm. you know, movement, like I said, being another, or a, a developmental understanding being another. I wish beyond just getting into classrooms, we could get into teacher training programs like Humboldt State University that, you know, is training teachers. You know, I send my graduate students to go visit uh, Coastal Grove and uh, Redwood Coast Montessori, even though they're placed at a traditional public school and they always come back and say, oh my gosh, I had no idea this exists. So, you know, I think that exposure is important, but, um, you know, we, you know, we don't do... In my opinion, if you look at other countries like Finland, who are have put their they've staked their entire economy on their education system. I mean, it's a knowledge-based economy. Singapore, for example, again, a knowledge-based economy. They know how important it is. Nobody that walks into a classroom in Finland or Singapore has anything less than a master's degree, right? And, and they get paid well, and their graduate programs are highly competitive. So my test scores or my, you know, my, um, you know, my straight A's or, you know, whatever in my high school puts me in a pool of a lot of others that um, might not get into the teacher training program. And it's intense and it's important. And you see, you know, there's a value there. I I don't know that education is valued in the same way in this country. um, Well, I mean, just even when you talk about people being paid well to teach, I mean, like yeah. most people I know who go into teaching, it's because they 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 have a heart to serve and they're willing to take a yeah. deep pay cut, yeah. as you know, and it, which which breaks my heart a little. I mean, to see that the people that are doing you know some of the most crucial work yeah. as far as raising you know creating our culture yeah. you know and creating our citizenry are deeply undervalued, and I sometimes have to you know like scrounge just to pay their own. Yeah, which is yeah. there's a whole conversation there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. we've been, we wanted to take it out of the realm. So we have these interviews where we kind of, we, we pull from the, the, the experts and we get, you know, your story and your information and all the great juicy information that you have. But then we've been doing these kind of micro episodes as a follow up because we realized that there's, we want to implement, you know, we yeah. want to bring some of this information and ideas and ground it into the real everyday, you know, here's how you, me, us, we can all yeah. do things mm. to implement these ideas. So, yeah. you know, accessible for everybody. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Well, and just to, to take it out of the realm of the intellectual and the abstract, because, you know, we can get caught there. So, so I was just going to ask you, Jeff, if you have, if you could give us even just a brief off the top of your head reading list, you know, where do we go to get inspired or a resource list? You know, where are some of your go-tos that you like to point the, the lay person so uh-huh. they can bring some of this knowledge, this inspiration, this toolkit, so to speak, into their everyday? Is there yeah. a place that you could point us? 
Yeah, well, um, the Alliance for Public Waldorf Education has a website there, and and that you know also has resources and uh, ways to connect to the Waldorf community in general. You know, there there are again, you know, uh, Waldorf Today is a is a is a weekly email that that gives all kinds of wonderful resources that you know, and it's free to sign up. It talks about what's going on at the schools, but it talks about also. You know, it has a whole homeschooling community behind it and what parents can do. And, you know, again, Waldorf education is also a way of living in a sense. Mm-hmm. And it's a, so you have to embrace not just the education piece, but what goes on outside of school right. as well. It's not, it's not just about what they're, you know, they're six hours a day that they're in school. It's about turning off the television in your home. It's about bringing um, healthy, you know, natural organic foods into your you know, in, onto your table. It's about um, slowing down and bringing reverence to, you know, our consumerism type ways of being, you know, that are so easy to get caught up in. I was going to ask what your advice would be to a parent that came to you and said, I have to put my kid in public school, um, but what can I do at home? Yeah. But I think you just kind of answered that. And I would add on to that one thing, like my daughters don't want me to read a book to them at night. They want a story. They yeah. want, and they want to be in the story. They want to tell me what characters they want. and so Such that. a different experience. Yeah. I mean, to read a story and show the pictures and tell a story. I mean, yeah, I can walk into the most rowdy middle school classroom and start telling a story and like, you can hear a pin drop. You take out a book and it's totally, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's just different. It's just totally different. It's it's about keeping your in your inner picture memory and your picture imagination alive so in that imaginative world yeah and it, I think it's one of the most primal elements to us I mean it goes back to like our very first men episode we talked about telling why stories. are we doing this yeah. you know sitting on the campfire and telling stories and how much is learned and passed and yeah yeah um there's a lot we can do I think our biggest challenge as parents is, is we've lost our sense of direction our sense of trust we're constantly living in these systems of external evaluations. I think surrounding ourselves, bringing people together, that's happening more and more, is really what we need to come back to. Have we leased our prayers to the screen? Traded in God for the demands of the blinking cursor, the frustrations of the spinning rainbow of impatience. Our Father who art now and virtual. Have we swapped our children's future happiness for communication so distant and detached it looks like warfare from where I stand? Sacrificed the soft flesh of their brains, those tender moments of connection and integration on the altars of convenience and entertainment? Am I victim or perpetrator? I have dropped the pen for the comfort and speed of metal-clad messengers, for faster processing and sharing of my thoughts, but what have I lost? The brief but crucial recognition of the surfacing words, the, oh, I know you, moment of my story, before it is no longer mine alone. One click, maybe two, and the words spin out into the world, becoming signal flares to my soul. Have we sold our soul to the devil so our fingers may play with otherworldly enchantment upon the keyboard? I wonder, does the music sound better now? 
will we always believe so? Has the screen become our veil, our shelter from seeking eyes and arms yearning for comfort, our confessional of irreverence? Will we some day awaken from a dream that is our nightmare to find that we have slept through the moment we had been waiting for? We are being had, and we are the doers, the processional to our own funeral, the driving dog and fretting lambs on the way to slaughter, both the hangman and the accused. What if we pulled the plug? What would we see in the reflection of the blank screen? Dull, shrunken eyes, hearts shriveled and unquenched, a scattering of children and broken people lying malnourished and pointless at our feet? Will we awaken to find that we have been abandoned because we have abandoned ourselves? Forgive us, Father, for we have sinned. Perhaps there is still time. Perhaps there is still hope. The sentinels of humanity have not yet given up their post. I can still hear the rumble of God in my husband's laugh the twinkle of magic and the gentle lapping of water against the hull of a boat, and the lament of morning doves outside my window. I can still see the passion of the goddess in the dancing bodies of my children, feel it in the reverberation of drumbeats along my skin and the fire-infused sky of an oncoming storm. I can smell the divinity of creation and the warmth of a campfire surrounded by storytellers and musicians the sweet aroma of night-blooming Nicotiana, and the salty air of a setting sun. Now is the time to unplug, to reconnect to ourselves, to each other, to our gods, before our prayers become nothing more than a blinking cursor full of dwindling hope, waiting in vain for a response that may never Come. Thank you for being here with Amy and I at MEND. We hope that you are finding these conversations enjoyable and inspirational and perhaps educational. We certainly are. Every one of these talks that we have with somebody, we just we come away from it so inspired and so jazzed about what we're doing. So thank you for being a part of it. And thank you for spreading the word. Our audience is growing. The word is getting out there. And we'd love to continue that trend. So, yes, please continue to tell your friends about it. Bring them into this conversation. Share share the episodes with them. If one is uh, especially inspiring to you, you know, send it to a friend. That's what I do. Again, you know, leaving a review that helps to this podcast seen by more people and we think these conversations that we're having are really important and we really do believe in what we're doing so thank you for your support and if you'd like to get in touch with us at all if you have any suggestions comments questions you could email us at mendpodcast at gmail.com or you can find us on facebook uh, mostly on instagram that's kind of where our biggest presence is and yeah get in touch or just enjoy the conversations hopefully you are taking away something that is useful to you in your life so again thanks for being here 
and we will see you next week.